Let's open our Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Let's go to where Paul was reading for us earlier this morning, verses 1 through 4. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you a small among the nations, and you shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? And though you exalt yourself as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Obadiah is one of the minor prophets. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament, one chapter, 21 verses. And the subject matter is a prophecy of the devastation that the Lord is going to bring on the little kingdom of Edom. And what we need to do in order for us to really connect the dots that are going to end up in the New Testament uh, this morning, we have to lay the foundation. And um, it always amazes me. Uh, every time we go through the, the scriptures again and again, I'm always seeing something I've never seen before. The same is true this morning. And it just gives great credibility that man had absolutely nothing to do with the penning of this book. So with that, with the history, let's go back. This is a judgment against Edom. The question is, who is Edom? Let's go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 16. And we're going to be reading most of the chapter. We find that uh, God had made a promise to Abraham, and he told him that, um, that his descendants would have the land of Israel. In order to have descendants, they have to have a son. And so God promised him a son, but um, uh, Sarah is barren. They end up in Egypt, and while they're in Egypt... Uh, Abraham talked to Sarah ahead of time. He said, look, you're a good-looking girl. And as soon as the Pharaoh sets his eyes on you, he's going to want you. So say you're my sister. You know, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm uh, Sarah at this time, he's getting one right in, <laughs> in the kisser. <laughs> what do you mean say I'm your sister? You're supposed to be my man. Stand up for me. But she uh, submitted to him. And it's actually an example in the New Testament that uh, Sarah called Abraham Lord. And she submitted to him, and basically, in the midst of a lie. Well, when that happens, and um, the Lord kicks in, and we find that Pharaoh had a dream, and it was revealed as he was watching Abram, sport is a word with, with Sarah, uh, that the Lord a- appeared and spoke to him and said, you lay one hand on that woman, you're a dead man. So he, he calls Abraham aside and says, what do you think you're doing? He told me you're, she was your sister. She's your wife. He says, now get out of here. Well, in the meantime, the only thing that came out of that trip uh, was Hagar, who became... Sarah's handmaiden. That's where we're picking it up here. So in verse 1 it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarai. And then Sarai, uh, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And after Abram had dwelt in ten years in the land of Cana, and so he went to Hagar, and she conceived, 
And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became distressed, despised, I should say, in her eyes. In other words, she had this attitude now. And her attitude went of being a handmaiden for Sarai. Now she's gloating. I'm pregnant, and you're not. Then Sarah, verse 5, takes it out on Abram. Then Sarah said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she conceived, I became despised in her eye. Now the Lord judge between you and me. And Abraham wants out of this deal, so he said to Sarai, well, she's your handmaiden, do with her as you please. And so Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her presence. That's Hagar. Now, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring of the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm, I'm running, fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And so the angel of the Lord said to her, I want you to return to your mistress, and I want you to submit yourself under her hand. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. Every hand shall be against, his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also seen him who sees me? Therefore, uh, the well was called Bir Leahoa. Observe, it's between Kaddish and Bered. And so Hagar bore Abra a son, and Abraham named his son, who Hagar bore Ishmael. And he was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. But remember, God already promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a son by promise, and uh, whose descendants will be like the number of stars. So here is the beginning of, um, let's go to chapter 21, just turn a couple pages over, and uh, where we see the child of promise that the Lord had promised to. This is 14 years later. Uh, Abraham's 100 years old and Sarah's 90. Now that's funny. <laughs> okay, verse 1, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. That was his promise. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And the reason they called him Isaac is um, um, Sarah earlier had overheard the Lord speaking. She had her ear at the tent door, and the Lord was telling her, I'm going to give you a son. And... Uh, um, Sarah just laughed. She, th- she thought it was hilarious. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a baby at my old age. And the Lord says, why did your wife laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. And the Lord says, yes, she did. <laughs> she had her ear on, on the tent. And the word Isaac means laughter. So the very name has something to do with she's not believing that God could do it. She's 90 and Abraham's 100. And she thought it was the funniest thing she ever heard. So Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight years, eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh so that all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? 
for I have borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. And therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Now we're talking inheritance. He already has a son, would have been the firstborn. And uh, when she sees uh, Hagar scoffing, um, she says, get rid of him. And the matter was very displeasing to Abraham because he loved his son. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the sons of the bondwoman because he is your seed. Now, what I didn't tell the first service, I'll tell you, that the verses we just read are extremely important because they're actually going to paint a picture for us in the New Testament. And it takes over 4,000 years when the Lord says, do what Sarah said to do. Well, there's a reason the Lord is telling. But we're not gonna, you're not going to know that until we get to the end of our Bible study. But I bring it up now because I want you to see just how... Um, no, no, the Lord knows the beginning from the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And when he laid this thing out, the whole story and the pictures and how it ties in, and in this case, with a very important theological doctrine. And it's all based upon what we just read here. Is that a teaser or what? I hope so. So with that, we have... Um, um, uh, Hagar and her son uh, being cast off, but then he told her that he would make of him also a great nation. Uh, let's turn to Genesis 25 and um, look at verse 21. But before we get there, we had this Bible study several weeks back where we have Abraham sending his servant into another land to find a bride for Isaac because he didn't want his son to marry any of the um, Hittites, the Amalekites, uh, none of the people of, of that land. So go to verse 67 of chapter 24 first, and we'll see the marriage between Isaac and Rebecca, uh, the journey was successful. Rebecca consented to go back. Verse 67 says, Then Isaac brought into his mother's tent, Sarah's tent, and he took Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So here we have uh, the marriage between Isaac and Rebecca. Now chapter 25. And we have the genealogy of, of Abraham, beginning with verse 19. And uh, it says, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. And Abraham begot Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Padanaram, uh, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She said, Something's not right here. Uh, these guys, too, my ch child is just always upset, or something's not right. And so she takes it to the Lord, and the Lord says, two nations are in your room. And I would have said, oh, that explains it. <laughs> uh, two people shall be separated from your body. 
One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Well, that's not the way it goes in Judaism. The firstborn has a double portion. The firstborn is the one um, that is served by the younger. But he says, I'm going to turn that around. So when the days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first one came out red, and he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called him Harry. <laughs> that's Esau. That's what it means, or red. Afterwards, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So they're fighting to see who gets out first. So his name was called Jacob, which means heel catcher, or supplanter, or deceitful, which he was. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, and so the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents, sort of a mama's boy. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And, um, you know, it's the old smothers brother say, mom loves me best, you know, <laughs> And so there were, there were favorites, you know. There shouldn't be favorites, you know. I always told the rest of my brothers and sisters, Mom loves me best, just to get their goat. And then Mom would say, no, I don't. I love all my kids the same, no exceptions. And now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field. So now Esau, the hairy one, He came back from his deer hunting trip, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, because Jacob learned how to cook from his mom, please feed me with some of that red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called what? Edom. So this is where we look at the history of if Obadiah is a study of the judgment of Edom, then who is Edom? Well, Esau is Edom. And this is where it's first mentioned. So Jacob said, well, if you want some of my soup, you have to give me your birthright right now, today. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die here. What good is my birthright if I'm going to die? So Jacob said, swear to me this day. So he swore to him. It meant nothing to him, actually. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now turn with me to um, chapter Genesis 36, just so that we're really clear about this. So there's 14 years that passed between Ishmael and Isaac being born. In chapter 36, verse 1, it says, Now this is the genealogy of Esau. Then what does it say? Who is Edom? Now, it goes on to tell us that, remember, Isaac uh, had to send to another country, to relatives, to get his bride, Rebecca, but not Esau. Esau could care less if the woman were godly or not godly. And his genealogy, Esau took the wives for his daughters of Cana, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Ahalobama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibon, the Hittite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nabajoth. And so we have him marrying the women of that land. And it tells us in verse 9, so Esau dwelt in Mount Zir. This is going to come into play later. Esau, again, is Edom. And this is a genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in Mount Seir. And then it gives the names of, of the sons. So as we start our study, we're finding that the child of promise, that God promised, is Isaac. Laughter. 
But Esau, even though he was uh, the firstborn, he cared not for the things of the Lord. Um, He learned to do after um, the things of the, the Amorites and the Hittites and married those those women. And I'm saying that to make the point that he really uh, did not care for the things of God. Now, turn to the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first three verses. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste the mountains and his heritage for the jackals and for the wilderness. So, you know, there's people who read this. When we read this, we find that the Lord says he loves Jacob, but he hated Esau. Uh, This is a strange thing for God to say if God is not a respecter of persons, and it sort of presents a problem. Turn with me to Romans in the New Testament, chapter 9. And I'm going to read this first part here, even though it's going to switch gears big time in verse 6. Again, let me, gives me an opportunity to expose false teaching when I read these verses right here. There's a doctrine out, I've talked about it a couple months ago, called uh, dual covenant. A dual covenant is God has made two covenants, one with Israel and one with the church. And just being Jew- Jewish, um, you're in. And then you have uh, the covenant, the new covenant that the Lord says that he brought. Well, this should, should settle it. And before I tell you anything more, remember that in the early church, when it started, they were only Jews. But they were Jews that became believers in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when Cornelius got saved, they couldn't believe it, who was a Gentile. How can a Gentile get saved? Only Jews have salvation. Well, with the new covenant, in order to be saved, you could be Jewish, you could be Gentile, doesn't matter what. Um, we, we read it yesterday, if you're in Christ, there's neither slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. Good place for an amen. Okay, but there are those that hold to this, and Hagee is one of them. James, um, uh, 700, Pat Robertson, 700 Club. These are guys that hold to this doctrine. Well, it's not sound doctrine, and these verses here should set it to rest. Verse 1, chapter 9. I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Okay, he's saying, I would be cursed eternally if it meant my brother's the Jewish people would be saved. And that's a heavy thing to say. And uh, he begins it by saying, I'm not lying. My my conscience is telling you the truth right now, that he would do that, and I believe Paul would. Would I do that for you? I'm not going to answer that question. (laughs) Who are, and then he he gives the, the credentials and the importance of why God raised up the Jewish people, verse 4. Who are the Israelis, the Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to all flesh, Christ came, who is, is over all the eternal blessed God. Amen. The things that were entrusted to them, they failed miserably at. He gave them the law, the covenant, the service, and the promises. And there will be a remnant at the end that will be saved during the great tribulation period. And, um, you know, 
who better than Moses and Elijah to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ along with 144,000 Jews from the different tribes. They're Jews. What are they doing? Preaching the everlasting gospel. And when they get rid of Moses and Elijah, the Lord raises up an angel who fulfills Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. It says, this gospel of the kingdom shall go into all the world. Everybody's going to hear it. And then it says, and then the end will come. Well, at our best, God always leaves a witness. But Moses and Elijah are gone. So who's preaching the gospel now? An angel preaching the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. It says, to the whole world. That's where I believe that verse is fulfilled. Now, the best missionary work in the world is not going to have the gospel preached to the entire world. This is an event that is going to be seen and heard by everybody. There's two other angels. One says, don't take the mark of the beast. And the other one says, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And that's in the book of Revelation. But here, now we're switching gears, and God's going to show his sovereignty in verse 6. He says, but is it not the word of God that has taken no effect? For they are not all Israel who are Israel. In other words, just because you're an Israeli, it doesn't, doesn't mean that you're um, saved and going to heaven. Uh, for they are all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Okay, that's the promised child. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. For the children, not yet even being born or having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What then shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. So the problem here is if God is no respecter of persons, how can he say that he loves this guy and he hates this guy? As we consider this, go back to the explanation. Let's go back to Obadiah. And before I answer that question, I want to give you the reasons that God is going to judge Edom. This whole chapter, all 21 verses, deal with one subject, the judgment of the Edomites. So in verse 10, we read, For your violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried away captives his force, When foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. Okay, what he's talking about here is when King Nebuchadnezzar comes and attacks Jerusalem. Here's Edom, and they're cheering the Babylonians on. So one of the reasons, let's go to verse 12. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the time of his captivity nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of their distress. You should not have entered the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance. Well, they were running for their lives. The Edomites were going in and ramsacking and looting, just like what was taking place with the... um, uh, the hurricane, the looters came in. Well, Jerusalem's getting sacked. What are the Edomites doing? Going in and and uh, doing the looting. In the day of their calamity, you should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among who were escaping. 
So some of the, the people in Jerusalem who made it out, all of a sudden they hit a roadblock. Who was the roadblock? The Edomites. Nor should you have delivered up those among whom remained in the day of distress. Not only did they stop them, but they turned them over to King Nebuchadnezzar. So, raises a question. The Bible says, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, what comes into play here is free will and the sovereignty of God. And as we read this, how are the things of of Esau stripped away bare here? In other words, they laid out in the open um, these scriptures that we just read. And now what the book of Obadiah actually does is he puts a microscope down on Esau or Edom. And when you look through the eyepiece, you see Edom. Not only did Obadiah focus the microscope on him, but Obadiah is God's microscope. Come here and look through the microscope. One Esau, he magnified. One Esau now turns into 250,000 little Esau's, and that is Edom. Remember he said, I will make of you a great nation? That was part of the promise. And, but you inf- as you inflate a tire tube to find out a tiny leak in it, just so Obadiah presents Esau as inflated so that he can see what the, f- the flaws in his life were. And you can see why God said he hated him. What at the beginning was just a little pimple under the skin is now raging, angry cancer. What was small in Esau is now magnified 100,000 times in the nation. God did not say at the beginning that he hated Esau. He had to wait until it became a nation. And uh, that despised Israel and actually stood against Israel. And for this reason, God knew Question, did God know ahead of time that Esau would marry Hittites and Canaanites? Of course. Is there anything that God doesn't know? Of course. There's, he knows everything. And he's sovereign. And he knew, according to the foreknowledge of God, exactly how Esau was going to turn out. So he can say, um, in these verses that I just read here, uh, we find, however, that God has something to say to his people about their relationship to Edom. Now, this is what the Bible says an Israeli, how they should treat an Edomite. In Psalm 137, verse 7, we read, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. Eden, instead of befriending Israel in the dark hour when the Babylonians destroyed that nation, They stood on the sidelines and, in fact, became the cheering section, urging the Babylonians in their brutality. But God had said to Israel at the very beginning that when you come into the land, thou shalt not abhor an Edenite, for he is your brother. So why does the Lord love Jacob and hate Esau? Because they were obedient. It was hands off if you were an Israeli to to the Edomites, but vice versa. What did it say they would become? Like a wild ass whose hand would be against every man. That's what we read back in in, uh, Genesis. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 49. Jeremiah 49, picking it up in verse 7. Against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Taman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the dense uh, depths of inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring calamity of Esau upon them, the time that I will punish him. If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave some gleaming grapes? If a thief by night, would they not destroy until they have enough? But I have made Esau bare. I have uncovered her secret place, and she shall not be able to hide herself. His descendants are plunders, his brethren and his neighbors, and he is no more. 
There are no more Hittites. There are no more Ammonites. There are no more Philistines. Um, uh, But guess what there is? There are Israelis who, after all odds, after being dispersed in 70 AD, somehow maintain their identity after being pushed into the entire world, miraculously come back. Isaiah 11, verse 11 says, I will gather them the second time. What was the first time? Well, the Babylonian captivity. Seven years in Babylon, then I'm going to bring you back. What's the second time? Well, in 70 AD, they were driven, it's called the dysphoria, into the farthest parts of the earth. Did God bring them back? Oh, yeah. They're the only democracy in the Middle East. Their technology is off the charts. And um, their fruit fills the world. They took what was nothing and made it into the Garden of Eden. And they became a nation in one day. Just exactly what God said he would do. But as far as the Edomites and the Moabites and the Hittites and the termites, well, there still might be some termites around, I'm not sure. But the rest of these people have been assimilated into different cultures. And they no longer have their national identity. Okay, from here, uh, the ongoing struggle, this has been going on now, this hatred in the Middle East against Israel, really for 4,000 years. It began in the womb of a woman where they're struggling against each other. And this is one of the, the things that, that uh, this just blew my mind when we found this out this week. <clears throat> um, now I'm going to bring it up to current events. We've sort of laid a foundation, and I want to bring it up to Jesus' time at this point. Uh, because they were close relatives, the Israelites were forbidden to hate the Edomites, Deuteronomy 23.7. However, the Edomites regularly attacked Israel, and many wars were fought as a result. King Saul fought against the Edomites. King David subjugated them, established a military garrison in Edom with control over Edomite territory. Israel had access to the port of the Red Sea, from which King Solomon sent many expeditions. And after the reign of Solomon, the Edomites revolted and had some freedom until they were subdued by the Assyrians. And so now we're going through the Assyrians and history, and we're up now to the Maccabeans. This would have been about 174. Um, When Judas Maccabeus, remember he went to fight against Antioch Epiphanes and the temple was finally cleansed. And so now we're at that period of time. And during this time, the Edomites were subjugated by the Jews and forced to convert to Judaism. And through it all, the Edomites maintained much of their old hatred for the Jews. Now, when Greek became the common language, the Edomites were called Idomeans. And with the rise of the Roman Empire, the Idomeans, now catch this, whose father had converted to Judaism, was named King of Judah. The Idomean is known in history as King Herod the Great. What? King Herod was an Edomite? Yep. And he was the one who massacred the the children in Bethlehem, Matthew 2, verse 16 through 18. I did not know that until this study. After Herod's death, um, the Idumeans... They slowly disappeared from history. God had foretold the destruction of the Edomites in Ezekiel 35. As rejoice over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I'm going to deal with you. You shall be desolate. Mount Seir and all Edom, all of it, and then they will know that I am the Lord. And despite Edom's constant efforts to rule over the Jews, they faded into history. Now, turn with me to Psalm 83 and bring it up to current events. 
because what we've had so far this morning is basically a history lesson on how the Edomites came into existence. It describes their character. They were always at war, like a wild ass. And um, yet, in Psalm 83, they're mentioned again. And before I read this, I'm going to give a little disclaimer. The Bible says in the last days there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Things are heating up right now in the Middle East. Good Bible teachers um, don't agree with the two trains of thought of Psalm 83. I personally lean to this as not being fulfilled yet. So does Hal Lindsey. And I'm going to do something I usually don't do on a Sunday morning. And I have a 10-minute video of Hal Lindsey speaking on Isaiah 17, verse 1, and Psalm 83. So everything that we've studied thus far is simply laying a foundation, uh, and we, we stopped off in the middle to show that even in Jesus' time, the Edomites were in play. We can go all the way back to Abraham and Isaac, and then we're going to take it all the way into No, I can't tell you that part yet, but I will, I promise, in a little bit. Psalm 83, let's read it first of all. Do not keep silent, O God, do not hold your peace. Do do not be still, O God, for behold, your enemies make a tumult. For those who hate you have lifted up their head. They've taken crafty counsel against your people. They consult together against you, your sheltered ones. They have said, come, let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel will be remembered no more. For they consult together with one consult. They form a confederacy against you. Who? The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagarites, Gebel, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia. Uh, That would be the Gaza Strip today, and the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. That would be where Syria is today. They have helped the children of Lot, Selah. Deal with them as you dealt with them with with Midian. Um, With that, at this time, we're going to go ahead and Hal is going to comment, first of all, on an event that, I'm not kidding, could happen today. And um, one of the prophecy conference the phrase he used was, the stage is so set, all you have to do is strike one match and it could start uh, this war that quickly. All right, run Hell's video on Psalm 83 and Isaiah 17. Yesterday's prophecies, today's headlines. This is the Hal Lindsey Report. As I have noted before, the city of Damascus remains the oldest continuously inhabited city on the face of the earth. In all its long history, it has never been totally destroyed. Yet Isaiah predicts that in the last days, Damascus will be totally annihilated in a matter of moments. He wrote, The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. And in that day, It shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. Isaiah's depiction of Damascus troubling Israel in the last days comes at a time when the glory of Jacob, or Israel, is made very thin. Speaking in the same terms as this prophecy, if Israel's glory were any thinner, it would be transparent. The only condition under which Israel could survive the world's outrage at hitting Syria with a nuclear attack would be if Syria hit Israel first with weapons of mass destruction, such as biological, chemical, or nuclear weapons. That is exactly the kind of circumstances predicted in Isaiah chapter 17, verse 4. As I noted earlier, Syria has long-range missiles already armed with both chemical and biological warheads aimed straight at Israel. This ISIS report indicates that Assad either has 
or is developing nuclear warheads for use against Israel as well. Isaiah makes a further prediction about the terrible incident. And behold, at eventide, trouble, and before the morning, he, meaning Damascus, is no more. This is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. Many experts believe Israel has more than 200 nuclear weapons that could fulfill Isaiah's prophecy in about 60 seconds. The potential of a nuclear-armed Syria pulls Isaiah's prophecy right out of the Bible and plants it on the front pages of the daily newspapers. In the book of Psalms, number 83, is a plea for God's provision over Israel's security. In it, the psalmist identifies and lists Israel's traditional antagonists. He writes, For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee. In other words, they're not so much against Israel as they are against Israel's God that protects them in this prophecy in this psalm. The psalmist then identifies these enemies of God as the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. Edom is another name for Esau. Along with Ishmael, Esau is one of the principal forefathers of the Arab peoples. The Edomites and the Amalekites are descendants of Esau. The Moabites and Ammonites are the descendants of Lot. Moab is located in the Egyptian Sinai. Biblical Ammon is now central Jordan. The Hagrites are descended through Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, and the Hagrites are all the people that sprung from her. Here's where these ancient people are today. The Hagrites represent modern-day Saudi Arabia, the heart and soul of Islam. Gebal is the city of Jebel in Lebanon. Amalek and the Philistines are the modern place in Gaza, home to Hamas, by the way. And Asher, today's Syria and Iraq, are to join in helping the children of Lot, which is Lebanon home to Hezbollah. Syria is supplying and equipping Hezbollah and has styled itself as the protector of Lebanon and the children of Lot. Iraqi cities are racked with demonstrators demanding death to Israel and death to America as Israel's ally. The psalmist also identifies the particular target of the Edomite alliance. It's the choice pasture lands that surround Jerusalem. It is written, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. So what is the root cause of the Arab-Israeli war? It's possession of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. But the goal is not just the conquest of Jerusalem simply as an Arab territorial possession. The goal is the conquest of God's holy mountain and God's holy city for an Islamic religious possession. The events outlined by this psalm are future events, as is the eventual and total destruction of Damascus. The first conflict in a series of wars is predicted in Psalms 83. This appears to be the same war foretold by Isaiah's burden of Damascus in chapter 17. And it is also the same war predicted by the often overlooked prophecy of Obadiah. This war particularly involves the descendants of Esau, which includes all the other Arab states surrounding Israel. However, it carefully excludes the non-Arab Muslim states of Iran and Turkey, and of course Pakistan and other nations around the world. They are included in the confederacy of the Muslim countries led by Persia, which is modern-day Iran, in the second and final attack to destroy Israel. It is predicted in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. This massive offensive includes the Persians and Turks that will fight under the command of the power from the uttermost north, which is Russia. 
But amazingly, this confederacy does not include the Arab Muslim states. Why? You see, they will have already been neutralized by the earlier Psalm 83 war. And even more amazing, Ezekiel names the people of modern Saudi Arabia as non-belligerent against the West and Israel at the time of this second war. Some view Ezekiel's Gog-Magog war and the Psalm 83 war as two distinct events separated by some significant period of time. I believe that's correct. But I also believe that the Bible supports the conclusion that the two events are also separated by the rapture of Christians out of this world. The assumption of an interval between the two wars is necessary because the Gog-Magog war takes place during a time of seeming peace and security within the state of Israel. The war predicted by Psalm 83, Isaiah 17, and Obadiah appears as a decisive battle in the 4,000-year-old intergenerational conflict between the descendants of Esau and Jacob. But the prophecies about the Psalms 83 war indicate that when it is over, so is the Arab threat to Israel. The threats of the Muslim Arab nations in Psalm 83 sound like what we're hearing on TV and radio broadcasts from Damascus, Lebanon, Gaza, Tehran. And what appears to be taking place is the development of both of these enemy alliances simultaneously, unquestionably. The declared goal of both of these alliances is the annihilation of the state of Israel. Neither the Bible nor James Defense Weekly would give the Arab peoples named in Psalm 83 even a slim chance of surviving intact if Israel launched a retaliatory nuclear strike on their cities. And this very plan already does exist. Its code name is the Samson Option. Israel has codified this a long time ago. It's a strategy already planned, prepared, and ready to launch if Israel is clearly in danger of being overrun and destroyed. But I believe what is more likely to happen is this. Syria will launch weapons of mass destruction against Israel, and the other surrounding Arab nations will attack. In retaliation, Israel will launch a nuclear strike on Damascus that will utterly destroy it. Then Israel, facing overwhelming forces on all sides, will strike back with strategic neutron battlefield missiles at the massed armies. Neutron weapons are unique in that they can be built to only destroy life in a pre-calibrated radius, usually a radius of about one to five miles. This would destroy the bulk of the attacking forces without making the entire region unlivable. The Psalm 83 scenario leaves Israel with that no Arab enemies within immediate striking distance capable of launching another war thereafter. This possible scenario would allow for the unusual existence of Israel described in Ezekiel 38 as a land of unwalled villages. The Israelis would be living in apparent peace and security. Now, though I can't be dogmatic on this interpretation, current events continue to suggest the finer details of the stages of war in the end times that eventually end in the mother of all wars, Armageddon. I agree with Hal because he makes a distinction between Saudi Arabia, um, clearly not involved with the Ezekiel 38 war, but definitely mentioned in Psalm 83. So if I would sum it up, you have um, um, Israel, who's in the center, and they want to take it for its goods. So here you have Israel in the middle and all of the enemies indeed encircling them. Now, some of you here aren't old enough to remember when in 1984, Israel took out a nuclear reactor in Iraq. How many of you are old enough to remember that? Okay. So, um, Dylan being Dylan with his wit, uh, wrote a song called Neighborhood Bully. So Israel is the bully 
and all these everybody else are the neighbors. And um, when I read it this week, I thought, don't worry, I'm not going to sing, but I am going to um, show his wit as he sees it as a Jew and how the rest of the world, he, how he perceives them. It's called Neighborhood Bully. Well, the Neighborhood Bully, he's just one man. His enemies say he's on their land. They got him outnumbered about a million to one. He's got no place to escape to, no place to run. He's the Neighborhood Bully. The Neighborhood Bully, he just lives to survive. He's criticized and condemned for being alive. He's not supposed to fight back. He's supposed to be thick skin. He's supposed to lay down and die when his doors kicked in. He's the neighborhood bully. The neighborhood bully has been driven out of every land. He's wandered the earth an exiled man. Seen his family scattered, his people hounded and torn. He's always on trial for just being born. He's the neighborhood bully. Well, he knocked out a lynch mob. He was criticized. Old woman condemned him, said he should apologize. Then he destroyed a bomb factory. Nobody was glad. The bombs were meant for him. He was supposed to feel bad. He's the neighborhood bully. Well, the chances are against it, and the odds are slim that he lives by the rules that the world makes for him because there's a noose at his neck and a gun at his back and a license to kill him is given to every maniac. He's the neighborhood bully. Every empire that's enslaved him is gone, Egypt and Rome, and even the great Babylon. He made a garden of paradise in the desert sand. He's in bed with nobody under no one's command. He's the neighborhood bully. Now his holiest books have been trampled down. No contract that he signed was worth that it was written on. He took the crumbs of the world and he turned it to wealth, took sickness and disease and he turned it into health. He's a neighborhood bully. I had to get at least one poor imitation in. I've only edited this because Dylan can write this and there's four or five other verses. But, you know... He, he speaks the truth in a poetic manner in the same way that David did with the Psalms, expressing what a Jew has to go through. And there in the world, you go to the UN and you look at the voting record, they never vote for Israel. They're always voted against. They're the neighborhood bully. And behind it all, in all reality, is the God of this world who hates Israel And the only card that he's got left to play is to destroy every Jew before they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says, you're not going to see me again until Israel says that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So why was there a Hitler? What was his goal? To destroy every Jew. What did the Amman say in Iran? They can't be a country. Every peace proposal we ever made with them We gave them everything they wanted. They got up from the table and walked away. Why? Because until they're driven into the ocean and are in a nation, they're not going to be satisfied. But there's a a spiritual source behind all of that. All right, let's, believe it or not, uh, all this was a foundation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything we've covered thus far. Remember Jesus said the volume of the book is all about him? Yeah, well, Obadiah. Who would have thought Obadiah, Isaiah 17, Psalm 83 are all applicable. But the stories before it are told to lay down a very important doctrine. And we'll close with this this morning by turning to the book of Galatians chapter 4, which if I wasn't at men's prayer yesterday, this would not be a part of the Bible study. But because we were, we read the whole six chapters of Galatians. And um, we're going to pick it up at verse 21 and right above it, what Paul is wanting to establish that the law and grace cannot coexist. Can I say that again? The law, which is works, keeping the commandments, 
and grace cannot exist together. And what does he use? An Old Testament picture. Here's the teaching. And now here's the Old Testament picture. Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you really understand the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was born of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. I would read which, which things are a picture. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gave birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai, that's where the Ten Commandments and the 316 laws were given, in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of all, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who do not travail, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Now you got to go back in your mind's eye and remember that um, um, Hagar uh, took off with uh, Ishmael. And what did um, Abraham, he didn't like it, but the Lord says, listen to Sarah. And Sarah said, you're out of here. She was cast out. And now it's showing up in the book of Galatians. And we read here, what does the scripture say? Nevertheless, cast out the bondwoman. What blows my mind is this is 4,000 years in the making. When the Lord told her to do, Abraham to listen to his wife and cast her out, you know what he was thinking of? He was th- thinking of Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to use this as, as a, a picture or symbolic. And this is all part of God's plan, laying out this story and then making it a doctrine. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Let me say it this way. I grew up in a denomination that requires infant baptism in order for you to be saved. Um, along with believing that Jesus died on the cross, so on and so forth for you. Um, But what this is saying is you can't have it both ways. It's either going to be all grace or you better be a perfect person. That's what this is saying. And so anybody here, perfect person, just curious? I don't see any hands for some reason. But the one was who, who did. Remember when Jesus said, Don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I haven't come to destroy it. I've come to fulfill it. Well, what does that mean? That means he lived lived a perfect life in thought, word, and deed. He was blameless. Pilate really went after him. And when he did, four times he says, I find no fault in this man. He was a spotless lamb of God who had to be the perfect sacrifice without blemish to take my sin that I deserve, and it was laid upon him, plus nothing else. Good place for it, amen. Amen. Nothing else. So this became a debate. In uh, the book of Hebrews, Paul's got to lay out to the Hebrews, no, we did, the early church were all Jews, until Cornelius came along. But when we read the scripture, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Well, that's what this is all about here. The law and grace cannot coexist. It, it, when Jesus said, it is finished, that's exactly what he meant. The job is done, paid in full. And Second um, Corinthians 5, again, he who knew no sin became sin for us, 
that we might be the righteousness of God. That's a good deal. He takes all my sin, and then he gives me his righteousness so that when God looks at me, I've never sinned. It's called justification, just as if you've never sinned. What should make, how should that make you feel? Very happy. Very grateful. So, Lord, what can I offer to you? Well, how about the sacrifice of praise? Love songs. I am the groom, you're the bride. If you're married, you love your wife, you want to sing love songs to her. Or you at least want to express that, um, um, that love that's there. That's why John the Baptist said, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom, but I'm not the bride. The church is the bride. And he said, the greatest, uh, the least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the, the one who gets in because he just believed in Jesus, has no works, the least, is still greater than John the Baptist. They have a different place in the kingdom age than the bride of Christ. So I call that good news. And I would call it, it's um, something that has to be defended at all cost. Because Jesus said, Paul said, if any man brings another gospel to than the one that I did, then let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Those are pretty strong words. And when you add anything to the finished work of the cross, you have another gospel. And so if that seems uh, narrow, it is. And because Jesus said, straight is the gate and narrow the way and few be that find it. Oh, by the way, he also said it was difficult. Not an easy ride. There's trials that come with it. But broad is the way that leads to the destruction, and many be that find that. Well, oh, there's a lot of different doctrines out there, but there's only one true gospel. And the argument here in the heart of it is that you can't have law and grace coexisting together. One's got to go. So what's the picture, Sarah? Um, Kicked her out, Abraham, do it. Because the Lord is thinking, when the gospel is preached, this is going to become an issue. So I'll use this, as we read here, as a symbolic picture to drive the point even more home. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, I thank you for the um, way your Holy Spirit has laid out your word in such a way that this little book of Obadiah, Um, ties in Isaiah 17 and Psalm 83 and judgment against Moab. And um, it's a marvel, Lord. We marvel at your word, and we're so grateful for your word and the stability that it brings uh, to us. And we thank you, Lord, that um, you loved us so much that you did all the work for us. And what you're looking in return is to love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. That's doable, Lord. Uh, so we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. God's people said, Amen. Amen.